This is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours, too. The only problem is, after I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away. Welcome to episode number 48 of Baseball and Barbecue. I am Len Aberman and this is... Jeff Cohen. And welcome to an episode where... That, that was the Peanuts, right? That was Peanuts, Charlie peanuts, Brown. Charlie and, Brown, and right? Friends, yeah. And, and who better than baseball player Charlie Brown? Yes. He was... Uh, he was persistent. He got back on the mound. They would hit the ball. Didn't he, when the if I remember right, when the ball went past him, didn't didn't it, it hit him and it, like all his clothes fell off? He did a somersault and everything came <laughs> right. off. Yes, <laughs> very loose fitting. You know who the best player on his team was? Snoopy. Snoopy. Yeah, Snoopy. Of course. Yeah. And uh, well, and and then of course now you have MetLife Stadium, right? Which is Snoopy Stadium, basically. That's yeah. Right? That's football, exactly. Right. But but, but we're in baseball and and barbecue season. That 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 is true. And what episode are we on? Forty-eight. 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 You take the four, you double it, you get eight. Forty-eight. Okay. We're getting close to fifty. Yes, we are. Which and we're also getting close to our anniversary edition. Yes. Right. We are getting very close. And let's tell you about this episode. It's been two weeks. It's been two long weeks, and we did a tease at the end of the last episode, didn't we? We did. Yes, and what was the tease? Oscar Charleston. Oscar Charleston, that's right. So tonight, we're going to have two, we're going to have two parts to the, the, to the show, of course, our baseball and our barbecue. The first part is going to be our interview with Jeremy Beer, the writer of the Oscar Charleston book, which the official name of the book is... Oscar Charleston, the life and legend of baseball's greatest forgotten player. And the book is really great. The interview was a lot of fun to do. It's not just about Oscar Charleston. That's what's great about these interviews, these books. It, they're not just focusing on the, the player. You have to have the surrounding cast. So we, you learn a lot about uh, players that were in the Negro Leagues, the, the, you know, the, base, the Negro League baseball, um, even before the, that, the Negro Leagues. Before the formation, right. yes. right. And you learn about so many different players. It was a terrific book. And uh, the, the interview was fantastic. And I know you're excited about it because you're excited about everything. Yeah. And you notice I did not say that tonight, that I was excited. I, 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 thought, I was waiting for it. I, I thought I'm episode... Sure I, I'm sure <laughs> listeners were waiting for it. Yeah. Well, I figured episode 48 would be the time to, uh, to take a different course. I'm going to let our listeners get excited. But hold on. Yeah. Not only do we have the interview with Jeremy Beer... We also have our barbecue segment, and yes. our barbecue segment is going to be something a little like we did 
two years ago when we first started. Yes. We did on our first episode. Episode number one. Yeah, that is the first, yes. We did the gift, the, the, the gift guide, right. right? What to get. For barbecue people. Right. But it's going to be a little different tonight. Uh-huh. And I'll explain when we get to it. Okay, but before that, let's do a little business. If you want to reach the show, give us a call, 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Post a comment on our Facebook page. Check out our website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Did you mention Instagram? Not yet. I was going to. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say Twitter first. Oh, yeah. Our Twitter account is at baseballandbbq. And our tw- and our Instagram is baseball and barbecue. Barbecue is all spelled out. Right. Okay, I got all that out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. You good? I'm good. You want you want to uh, listen to uh, Mr. Beer? Yeah. Well, we made people wait two weeks. I'm I'm I want to get to it, and I'm excited about it. Let's go. All right. Here is our interview with Jeremy Beer. Baseball and Barbecue has with us tonight Jeremy Beer, principal partner of American Philanthropic. Jeremy Beer has worked at the nonprofit since 2000. Prior to co-founding American Philanthropic in 2009, he was vice president of publishing and information system at Intercollegiate Studies Institute, where he also served as editor and in chief of the Institute's award-winning press ISI book. He also has written a book called Oscar Charleston, Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player, and we are thrilled to have him with us tonight on Baseball and Barbecue. Thank you for joining us, Jeremy Beer. Hey, it's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Jeremy, there's so much There's so much I want to ask about you, the book. So let's just get started. It doesn't look like you had ever written a book about a, uh, a pro athlete before. Is that true? No, that's true. That's right. This is... Uh... I jumped right in with Oscar Charleston. Yeah, so place to start. So how how did you arrive at doing a book on Oscar Charleston? Well, I'd, I'd always wanted to write a baseball book, and about must have been almost ten years ago now. I was reading Bill James's historical baseball abstract for the first time, and came across his list of the top one hundred players of all time. And in that list, of course, Bill James is the Modern, you know, father of modern sabermetrics and analytics. He knows his baseball history. And on his list, number one is Babe Ruth, which, of course, makes a lot of sense. And number two is Honus Wagner. Okay, every baseball fan has heard of Honus Wagner. Number mm-hmm. three is Willie Mays. Great, obvious. And number four was a man named Oscar Charleston. And I was just floored. I had never heard of anybody named Oscar Charleston. And that really sort of put me in my place in terms of my pride, in terms of knowing my baseball history. But then the more I investigated about him online, the more interested I became. He's from Indiana, like I am, which really interested me. And it was also clear that there wasn't a lot known about him. What was online was kind of garbled, mythological, legendary. You could tell the telephone game had been played from source to source, sort of getting things a little bit screwed up every time it got passed along. So I thought, you know, if this man was as good as James claims he was, uh, he deserves to be taken seriously as a historical figure. And so that's why I started out researching Charleston, eventually decided just to go ahead and write the book. Before the book, you wrote an article for the Sabre website, which I guess was the genesis for the book. Uh, yeah, 
actually wrote it for another website first, I think, but yeah, it must be on. Oh, no, I know which one you're talking about. I'm sorry. There are a couple articles. But yeah, that article was in Sabre's Baseball Research Journal, which is online as well. And yeah, I that I published as I was working on the book. That article is about how Charleston got his reputation as a hothead, which is what you'll read about him if you just sort of Google around casually. And I wanted to tease out where that came from and uh, show how it's a misrepresentation of Charleston, that his, his reputation for violence on the field or being just a violent man generally is greatly exaggerated. He did get into a lot of fights on the field, as you know from reading the book, but not that many more than others got to in the time, and there were others who were much worse than him, and he never got into fights off the field. He wasn't a thug or a psychopath or a bad man. In fact, quite the opposite. So, yeah, that was that article that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, he, he started out at 15 years old. He uh, joined the uh, armed forces and went to the Philippines, I believe, and he was on the baseball team. That's how he started out, and he met someone else who uh, was a pretty good uh, Negro Leaguer on, the, on, that, on that team. Yeah, Bullet Joe Rogan, then just Wilbur Rogan. He gets the nickname Bullet Joe later and goes on to have a Hall of Fame career in the Negro Leagues himself as a two-way player to show high Otani of his time, pitcher and catcher, and played other positions as well. Yeah, Charleston and Rogan were on the same team, the 24th Infantry uh, team in the Manila League in the Philippines. This was an all-black team uh, playing against three other all-white teams in, in the Manila League in 19, this is 1913 or so. So they had a lot of, that team was blessed with significant talent in Charleston and Rogan. The only thing that kept other teams in the race against them was the fact that Charleston was 16 or so years old at that time and Rogan was maybe 18. So they were, they were very young and raw, but extremely talented and really made names for themselves in the base in the world of baseball starting there in Manila back in the teens. Now he had to lie about his age because to get into the military to go there, right? He was 15 when he entered the army and right. he was supposed to be 18 even at the time. You could get in one of, uh, or you could either get in if both parents signed a okay. document allowing you to go in or you could just lie. And uh. <laughs> what little evidence there is suggests that he probably just lied his way to the army because that's a story that got told later, and I, I suspect it came from Oscar himself. Now, Jeremy, you, so you, you get this idea for this book. How do you, how do you go about, I, I guess we're going to go back and forth on how you wrote the book, actually, and, and Oscar Charleston and, and all the characters in the book, but you yourself, you get the idea for the book, and the, the amount of research you put in, you know, it was like a full-time job. So who do you approach <laughs> with this idea that you're going to write this book on Oscar, Oscar Charleston, which so many people don't know about? So the first thing I realized is I had to go back to the original sources. Uh, I didn't want to trust anything that was second or third hand because I could tell early on in my research that was going to be a lot of contradictory stuff or just stuff that I didn't necessarily trust. It had the ring of, of myth or legend about it. So... I, I just went, I mean, thank God we live in the age we do. So many of the old newspapers that covered Charleston during his career have been uh, digitized. They're available online. You may have to pay for a subscription to newspapers.com or whatever it is. I had two or three subscriptions, though, pretty much get you everything you need, or a library access will get you the rest. So most, fortunately, most 
of the original source research I did was through digitized newspapers. And then I had to do supplement that with some microfilm work, especially the Philippines newspapers. They hadn't been digitized yet. Then combing through oral interviews. Again, thank God for men like John Hallway and Brett Kelly and a lot of these people who did the work of interviewing ex-Negro Leagues players in the 70s and 80s and 90s and later. So that's, that's, you know, they just basically give you the interview as it was. And so there's a lot in there scattered about Charleston. You can sort of start piecing things together about where he was and what he did and that sort of thing. But the big thing, the big breakthrough was finding out that Oscar's personal scrapbook and photo album that he kept with his wife, Jamie, just like, you know, anybody might have at the time, are housed at the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. Uh, A man named Larry Lester, who's the dean of Negro Leagues historians and researchers and a great man, had acquired them for the museum, I think back in the 80s or 90s, and they're there. They're not indexed, you sort of have to just know that they're there, (laughs) but they're there, I found that out, and that was just a tremendous window into Charleston's personal um, interest, his character, his personality, you know, just just by looking at the photos and what he selected to clip from papers helped make him come alive because there isn't any audio of him. There's no video of him. He was never really interviewed at length during his life, So, and he didn't leave any descendants. So those are my primary sources, and then I also was able to make contact with some players who had played for him near the end of his managerial days and, and some family members on, on his wife's side who, who at least could fill me in on her. So, yeah, that was how I went about it. It took a while. <laughs> As you say, it could have been a full-time job. Unfortunately, I have a full-time job. But over a course of a few years, you can, you can put it all together. Well, Jeremy, I found this book absolutely fascinating on the life of Oscar Charleston. And I, I really don't know where, where to begin. I guess I'll ask you, is he forgotten player because he was prior to the really... I guess the formation of the official Negro Leagues. I know it wasn't enough. It wasn't. They had so many iterations of it, but it was before the formal <coughs> Negro Leagues. Is that is that why part of the reason he is forgotten? Uh, I think it's close to that. I don't think it's exactly that. So, yeah, next year will be the 100th anniversary of the formation of the first formal Negro League. The Negro National League was created in 1920 by Rube Foster, who owned and managed the Chicago American Giants. And Charleston's career started in 1915 with the Indianapolis ABCs. So he only played for a few years before the formal Negro Leagues come into being. But I do think you've put your finger on one of the reasons why he's been forgotten, and that's just that he was part of an earlier generation that has been less documented, was less remembered by those men being interviewed by people like John Hallway, what I mentioned before. Um, He was earlier, a generation before Gibson, and Page and Bell. Now, he managed those guys, but he played a generation earlier. Mm-hmm. And so I think he's not alone, is my point, in saying there are a number of other fantastic, great players, and for all I know, complex, interesting men who played in that same generation, who we also have forgotten and know nothing about, and it's, and it's a crime. So like John Henry Lloyd, uh, who was known as the Honus Wagner of the Negro Leagues, and played on the East Coast most of his career, or pitchers like John Donaldson. There, there are a number of people who could claim to be greatest, maybe the greatest forgotten player, or certainly great forgotten players, and Charleston is just part of that generation. He, you, you 
mentioned Indianapolis ABCs, and that's where he started out. I think as a as a bat boy, if I remember the you know the, cha- the earlier chapters. Then he, he he was a player for the ABCs. Then he bounced around a couple of teams, then but always kept going back to the Indianapolis ABCs. Right. Yeah, that's where he's from. He was raised in, uh, born and raised in Indianapolis, and he had a sort of love hate relationship. It seems like with his first manager, I Taylor. C.I. Taylor was the uh, co-owner and manager of the ABCs, was the moving force behind the team, one of the great Negro Leagues managers of all time. Uh, also one of four Taylor brothers who made careers in the Negro Leagues, all of them college-educated and very sort of civically upright men. He served as a mentor to Charleston, but he also, they, they, they were such strong personalities, uh, they didn't always get along, <laughs> so that's part of the reason why he bounced around. So in 1915, at the end of that year, he got into that, a famous fight in Indianapolis with a white team in, in the postseason exhibition game, and Taylor ripped into him. I was very upset, so I think Charleston was essentially booted off the team. Came back in 1917, then he leaves in 1919 for different reasons. It was after World War One, and C.I. Taylor wasn't fielding a team. He hadn't sort of caught his footing after the war, but Rube Foster had, so he got Charleston to come to Chicago. Then when Foster formed the Negro National League, part of the way that he proved his good faith to the other owners who entered into this new league confederation with him was by agreeing to send Charleston back to Indianapolis for purposes of league balance. So that was actually, Charleston played a kind of a key role in that drama by being a, uh, showing Rube Foster's good faith. Then he gets another fight with D.I. Taylor. So yeah, he was, <laughs> you know, he was not, I'll say this about Charleston, he was a natural leader he was not a natural follower. So yeah, I think he could be hard to have on your team if he wasn't the manager of the team. If he was the manager, things tended to go pretty well. Uh, but if he wasn't, especially early in his career, he wasn't always the happiest of campers. He was such a strong, kind of leaderly personality. Uh, Jeremy, one of the things that uh, I would not have wanted to be back then, Major is uh, an umpire. <laughs> no kidding, huh? <laughs> I-, I was... I was amazed as I'm reading this, all the times that the umpires got accosted, and and that they would carry guns with them, and it just it was like a, the wild west for them. Talk about uh, you know, yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I was surprised by that too. I mean, it started to make sense the more I thought about it. So, some leagues here that are there's not a strong central office, even when there's a formal Negro National League. It never has a lot of strength. Certainly not one that could back up the umpires no matter what. It just couldn't. It couldn't back them up the way that Major League Baseball can today. That was part of it. And the other part was it was just a more violent society. Number one, and a more violent game. Number two, generally. So even in the white game at this time, if you read about it, you know Babe Ruth takes an umpire. I think it's in the 1920s he does that. He had, he suspended for a few games. Donnie Bush, who was an Indianapolis native like Charleston, Tigers infielder, threw a baseball at an umpire's head from short range, and he was like suspended for a game for that. And that, you know, those were considered sort of big penalties. <laughs> in the in the Negro Leagues, it was even more common to get in fights with umpires, as you point out. It happened a lot. And the umpires started defending themselves. And it was not uncommon for them to carry guns on the field <laughs> underneath their uniforms. And Charleston, in fact, tells a funny story on himself 
some game in the 1920s, I think it was, he gets in the face of an umpire after a call he didn't like, and he says, stop robbing or I'll knock your block off. And the umpire points the gun into his stomach and says, now, Mr. Charleston, you wouldn't be a fool, would you? And Charleston thought that was really funny. I mean, it's okay. He had a very, that, that, that sort of thing that he found to be very humorous. But it also indicates, like you said, like, man, what a, what a thankless job it was to be an umpire. In fact, one of the things that the Negro Leagues did was have a lot of white umpires because they were less likely to be assaulted because of the social consequences that would come from that sort of thing. This was lamented in the black press a lot, even as it was sort of the logic behind it was recognized, that it was sort of one of the only... First of all, it's hard to find, I think, probably too, you know, black men who wanted the job, like you said. It was just a thankless, poor-paying, risky task. So, yeah, it's interesting to consider what umpiring was like back then. And one of the ironies is that later in his in his lifetime, I don't think from the book it didn't seem like it was for a long time, but Oscar Charleston was an umpire at one point. That's right. Yeah, it's just the sort of thing that attracted him. Once his managerial opportunities ran dry for a while in the early 1940s, or this might have been, yeah, it might have been the mid-1940s, you're right. He went and was an umpire for the Negro National League, I believe it was, for a year or two. That wasn't even clear to me in the research just how frequently he umpired games, but he did. You find at least one anecdote of a manager coming out of the dugout to argue with Oscar and him just raising his hand, and the umpire and the manager just walking back to the dugout. Like he, Oscar commanded the sort of physical respect and had the sort of reputation that his being an umpire wasn't quite as risky for him as it might have been for somebody else. Uh, no one was going to mess with Oscar even when he was in his you know mid to late forties. He was he was a tough dude. One of the things that I enjoyed so much about the book is one, it flows so well from chapter to chapter, from time period to time period. That couldn't have been easy to do because as you said in the book, finding things on these games and wasn't always the easiest to do. There wasn't always readily accessible articles on or stats or box scores. But the other thing was the little tidbits that you find throughout the book. Like there was one mention of, of uh, you mentioned Vince McMahon because it was his. You you tell what I know. Vince yeah. McMahon was mentioned. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, again, you're right. Just like random tidbit that was just too weird not to throw in. Vince McMahon's grandfather owned the New York Lincoln Stars, which was a short-lived Negro Leagues team that Oscar played for in 1916 and was based in Harlem. So yes, that was just a little random fact. Uh, it just I think his name was Jess McMahon. I'm going from memory on that. And just looking him up, like, I wonder who this fellow was. I mean, I wasn't clear to me whether he was white or black. You couldn't tell just from the newspaper sources. And, oh, that's Vince McMahon's grandfather. They've been in the sports promotion business for uh, some time in that family. So, yeah, that's one of the random facts. Yeah, and that, that's one thing that fascinated me that, you know, in the Negro Leagues, I, I had no idea that they, they actually had some white owners uh, of the yeah. ball clubs. That, was, that, that floored me. I, me Again, me too. I didn't. I didn't know that. Um, but then when you think about it, who had the capital? Right? Right. And it was just the sort of 
uh, accumulation of capital that you needed to float a team was rare in the African-American community. But so very frequently, black owners or, or managers who wanted to start teams would go to white backers to provide capital. And it was lamented all the time in the black press because some of these guys weren't real honest and they weren't great characters. There was a man named Nat Strong in the New York area who was not particularly well-liked by many, not by everybody, but by many in the African-American community. In fact, one of the really weird facts is that the Kansas City Monarchs had J.L. Wilkinson, their famous white owner, but he had a co-owner named Tom Baird. Well, it came to light recently through the research of a friend of mine, Tim Reeves, that Baird was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. Oh. He was a co-owner of the Monarchs. Oh, that is weird. <laughs> and, yeah. and Baird said, after Oscar died, Baird was one of the people who got into the press and said he was the greatest ball player who ever lived. No, yeah. no doubt about it. Uh-huh. So all these complexities and ironies and what, <laughs> you know, moments make for a more interesting story and I guess point to sort of the complexity of human beings. Weird lot. Growing up, we were growing up in in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and we knew racism exists back in the day, but I was I was really shocked to see how blatant it was, and maybe I shouldn't be because, you know, I knew it existed, but even in the press, and I'm reading on one of your pages here that the Detroit Free Press referred to the uh, black ball players as unbleached exterior, which I thought was, oh my God, I can't believe it. There's all sorts of stuff like that. I mean, you, you start to get numb to it after a while, frankly, in reading the old sources. Most of it, most of the time, I'll say, it's malicious, it's just unthinking. It's unthinkingly malicious, but it is not, like, intentionally malicious. But there is, there's some malicious stuff, too. Yeah, you just get numb to it. It's just, it's just so common, and you just see what a hill there was to climb for African Americans, um, it's sort of just the casual condescension and yeah, put downs and belittling uh, that had to be very tough to take. And you know, it's one of the things that you had to deal with if you were a Negro Leagues player. And it's amazing, and that's one of the reasons you come away from reading about these fellows' lives with such respect for them, because a lot of them, you know, in pre-integration days. Obviously, you just you, you couldn't fight back, you know, very effectively, if at all. You just had to take it. But they emerged with a lot of dignity. And sometimes you didn't have to take it. <laughs> you know, sometimes there were times where it was socially okay to fight back on the field. Like Oscar, for instance, got in most of his fights on the field against white teams. Mm-hmm. And it, it just like all, almost, I think he was just even more keyed up and tense in those moments. But yeah, what they had to go through in the South, especially traveling around, you know, you get pulled over by cops who want to pay off or tell you to be out of town by sundown and call you the N-word and all that stuff. Just the crap they had to take is really remarkable, but it, it at the same time, it, it makes it all more impressive how they come out on the other side. And, you know, a lot of observers say in those interviews that there's a sort of depth uh, and richness to the character of these men. And, well... You think about it, like, well, yeah, if, if characters are shaped by going through tough times and coming and coming through the other end, you can see why that might have been true. Yeah. Let's get back to Oscar on, on the ball field. And I've noticed that he spent a lot of time in, in Cuba before it went the communist regime. I guess Cuba was a happening place in the uh, in the 20s and 30s, and he went down there, what, 11 years? I 
11 years. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it was a hot. It was a happening place, and it was a particularly attractive place for African Americans because the sort of codes governing race relations were significantly more relaxed than they were in the United States, especially in the South. And so it was possible to fraternize with whites to go to many, not all, but many of the same restaurants and clubs and just sort of the everyday demeaning things that marked segregation uh, in the States. A lot of them were not present in Cuba. So uh, it was considered to be a very congenial environment. And then it was very competitive baseball. The Cuban League was about exactly as good as the Negro Leagues, I would say. So it was basically just a tick down from uh, the National League and the American League. And you could make money. Negro Leagues players made pretty good money in the Negro Leagues, actually. Uh, that's one thing that surprised me. They, they made more than the average white worker did throughout the 20s, at least. I think into the 30s as well, even in the Depression. But in Cuba, you could make even more. And then you could play, like, exhibition games in Cuba and make even more. So, yeah, Oscar played year-round for, like, 11 years. <laughs> like with, He might have a few weeks off when he come back from Cuba or maybe a week before he went down there. But... Yeah, it was a very attractive place to play ball for African-Americans and also for white major and minor leaguers, too. Oh, so they played in, in, in racial games, I guess, then? Down oh, yeah. There. Wow. Absolutely. Yep. He, uh, Oscar played four teams managed by Adolfo Luque. Adolfo Luque was, um, I think he won about a couple hundred games as a pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. And they appear to have been friends. There, there's at least one photo of them together in his photo album. So, um, like, socially. So, yeah, yeah, he played a lot of interracial contests in Cuba. So, Jeremy, as in the beginning of the book, and probably it, it would seem from your research, there wasn't a lot about Oscar, you know, in his early life. I thought it was interesting how he got his middle name, McKinley. I want you to address that. Or, I mean, there's not really much to address. You talk about the election and... McKin- his parents apparently were, well, what it told me was, even though his parents weren't very formally educated, as far as I can tell, in fact, his father was apparently illiterate, uh, they, they followed social goings-on. McKinley, he's named after William McKinley, right. was running against William Jennings Bryan in 1896, the year Oscar was born. So now, and, and as you go along, it seems like you found more stuff, and, and I guess the years, it, it got closer to, not now, but, you know, it just, you, you seem to find more information. But one of the things that I felt in the beginning was that the, it was sad at first. You know, you reading this and you're reading about the players and everything they went through, and I, and I felt really sad and angry and how baseball, I think baseball, fans of baseball, you know, we're all into these stats. If you're a fan of baseball, one of the great things about baseball is the statistics and what they mean. And if baseball had been integrated, who knows, maybe Josh Gibson would be the home run leader, right. uh, although he died young, but or maybe Satchel Paige would have been, maybe the award wouldn't be the Cy Young Award, maybe it would be the Satchel Paige Award. You know what I mean? There, There's so yeah. many different things. But as you go along in the book, you, you find out, and as you said, they didn't feel sorry for themselves. They they, right. they didn't feel sorry that they weren't in the major leagues. You want to talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, and I want to make sure I, I try to get this right because you don't want to make it sound like they didn't care that there was segregation. Right. They did. Clearly, they did. Right. They but, cared, but it. They, right. But you're right. But they did not see themselves as victims. Uh, the, the men of Charleston's generation. Uh, that was not the primary lens by which they they viewed themselves at all. And I think we can unintentionally see them that way ourselves, like you said, and just feel sad and angry for them, which is all fine. But they would be a little bit confused by that. Yes, they should have had a chance to play in the major leagues, and they thought that themselves. They built their own damn league, so they were were proud of that. They considered it a craft that they were part of, a black baseball tradition that was handed down from person to person. Buck O'Neill talks about this a lot in his, his memoir and other places. They were proud of what they accomplished, and they held their heads high, I guess is what I want to say. And they didn't they did not think of themselves just as victims, or even primarily as victims, but as people who had made the best out of less than ideal circumstances and were moving towards some good down the road. They were paving the way. The time was going to come when their work on the field showing that blacks were every bit as good as whites in baseball, and by extension, probably in everything else, too, right? Were they equal on the diamond, and thus everywhere else, too? That was going to pay off. Right. So I think there was a sense that they were getting somewhere. Now, the Negro Leagues come to have a very different sort of psychological valence, right, for the later generation. Jackie Robinson plays for the Monarchs for just a little bit, and Hank Aaron for the Clowns for just really a few weeks. Those guys didn't like the Negro Leagues. They didn't have almost anything good to say about them. They symbolized to them maybe a too ready acquiescence with the realities of, of segregation, yeah, not fighting in us. But that isn't at all what they symbolized to to Oscar and his generation. So, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of bring that out, just so we see, try to see these meditates all themselves. And and yeah, just, it, it, it's important I think to to know that they they thought they were doing something really good and positive, and and not were just you know simple simple victims. Now, when you you get all this, you do all this research, you have end notes. Remember when you were in school? I know when I was in school, and you had to, you had to footnotes. do a bibliography or footnotes, or you know, and you have a ton of them. I, I think uh, your English teacher would be very proud of you, because <laughs> you you basically you you footnoted and noted. What would you say in this book? Is it are they end notes, footnotes, yeah. right? End notes, right? Yeah, I mean, you did great with that. You definitely, you can't be accused of plagiarism in any way. Everything is definitely. <laughs> but you get this, now you, now you have this book, you, you're ready. So did you have an agent that helped you shop this? Or how did you uh, go about getting this thing published? No, I, do, I don't. I'm not lucky enough to have an agent. I'm not, I'm not big time enough to have an agent. But I did, I, there were, I said I was going to try a, a big trade press and to see if there was any interest and there was a particular editor I think it's Simon and Schuster who had acquired a number of other uh, baseball books I sent it to him he, he liked he loved the idea of doing a bio of Charleston but that there wasn't enough market for them and my next choice was Nebraska University of Nebraska Press which is really the best baseball publisher out there certainly one of the best they do a great job and I sent it to um Rob Taylor, uh, who became my editor there, and he called me like the next day and was ready to go. <laughs> he was excited to have a, the opportunity to do a Charleston biography. So it wasn't too hard to find a publisher 
uh, once I started to actually shop it around. Now, we had on our show, one of our first guests, actually, was Bob Kendrick, the president of the uh-huh. Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Now, you did a lot of research did you, at the museum, with the museum. Did you have any interaction with Bob Kendrick? I didn't with Bob. No, I've never met him. I'd be an honor to do so. Uh, Ray Doswell, who is another executive there at the museum, was the man I dealt with and was kind enough to not only uh, sit in his office with me for about three hours as I went through every page of the photo album and scrapbook and took pictures and documented what was on every page. That was sort of my way of making a copy. But then later on, made high scan photos for me and was uh, incredibly helpful. So the museum was a treasure. I'm so glad it exists. It should have ten times the resources it does, <laughs> in my mind. Now, Oscar did not have a, a, a nickname, and some of the great nicknames in, in Negro League Baseball was w, Double Duty Radcliffe, Bullet Joe Rogan, and he was uh, involved in uh, naming of James Bell, right? Yeah, allegedly. I mean, that's at least one of the story that I landed on as being the most plausible. It was, I think this would have been 19, gosh, 24 or so, and young James Bell playing for St. Louis comes into a game against the ABCs, I think it was, and uh, strikes out on the mound and strikes out Oscar Charleston, among others. And he gets a nickname. He, he was really cool on the mound, and somehow Papa gets added to it, and he becomes cool Papa Bell. So, yeah, that's the story that because of him striking out Charleston he, is one of the reasons he got the nickname cool Papa Bell. But you're right that Charleston doesn't, didn't really have a nickname that stuck. He was called Charlie at times late in his career. Not all that much, actually. It's been exaggerated how much he was called that, at least in the press. Early on, he was called the Black Tie Cobb or the Black Babe Ruth, but those aren't exactly nicknames that roll off the tongue, and, and he didn't need to be compared to anybody else after a while. That was pretty clear. So, No, he's just Oscar, Oscar Charleston for the most part. And you have a story in the book that Oscar Charleston may be partially responsible for uh, Roy Campanella yeah. coming to the big leagues. And also along those lines, that that Roy Campanella could have been the first to uh, break the color barrier. You want to go into that a little? Yeah, sure. So let's see. Let's start here. So Branch Rickey in 1945 is starting to get into full swing in his plan to sign black players for the Dodgers. Uh, he wants to get an edge on everybody else as the war is coming to an end, or as he foresees it coming to an end. And assigning black talent is going to be part of how he gets an edge. But he has a problem. Uh, how can he scout, and how can his scouts scout games between black teams without drawing attention to themselves? And they tried to do it, and, you know, it was a little risky. He didn't want anybody else tipped off on his plan. And also, a further problem, they weren't really able to get inside information about these players. What were they really like? What sort of habits did they have? all the stuff that Ricky was obsessively interested in, right? You know, we know how he backgrounded Jackie Robinson, like, head to toe. So he has an opportunity to place a franchise uh, in a new Negro League called the United States League in Brooklyn. And so he meets with the executives of this new league. They agreed to, to place a team in Brooklyn. And Oscar Charleston, who had been previously signed to manage the team in Philadelphia, the next thing you know, he's in Brooklyn. And what seems to have happened was that Ricky insisted that he come up and be his manager 
because he wanted Oscar to scout for him for uh, to try to get inside information on players and identify people who might be good to sign for the Dodgers. So while Oscar had nothing to do with the signing of Jackie Robinson, he had a lot to do with the signing of Roy Campanella. A couple of things there. First, the Dodgers were very skeptical that Campanella's real, his stated age was his real age. He was too big and too good, <laughs> they thought, to really be whatever he was, 19 or 18 years old. Oscar assured them, we are told by Clyde Stuforth, uh, the Dodgers lead scout, uh, Oscar assured them that Campanella's age was his real one. He, he, he had been around the Philadelphia scene for a long time at that time, so he knew oh, he would have known where Campanella came from and how he got his start. But then a number of the other early black signees for the Dodgers, Oscar had strong relationships with men like Johnny Wright, Roy Partlow, etc. So I think he did a lot of scouting. There's evidence to that effect for the Dodgers. And then Campanella uh, tried to give him credit for that in his memoir, and he, but he called him Oscar Robertson. <laughs> One more thing, going against Oscar Charles. <laughs> he didn't even get the name right, right? But yes, he, he recommended Campanella. Campanella said he was astonished at how much Branch Rickey knew about him because of Oscar's work. So he probably, I think he was the first, as far as I could tell, I, I did as much research on this as I could. I think Oscar was the first African-American to scout for a major league team. So I think he broke the scouting color line and has never been given credit for it. Did he know that, that he was hired as a scout? I mean, he was managing a team. I don't know. Good question. I don't know. Uh, He never talked about it. Uh, Ricky never talked about it. We get all of this from Clyde Sukforth, the Dodgers lead scout, and also secondhand from Oscar, or from Roy Campanella. There may be a couple of other little pieces of information about it, but those are our sources for this. Oh, there's the check. We have a check for him being paid to manage the Brown Dodgers. So I'm speculating. I don't know if you ever got a separate check for scouting, but we know he did it. Uh, Sukforth wouldn't have made that up, and Campanella wouldn't have made that up. But when he found out that that's what Ricky wanted, I don't know. It's a really good question, but I kind of suspect that he wouldn't have gone up to Brooklyn from Philadelphia, where he lived, if he had, if that hadn't been part of the deal uh, from the beginning. I just otherwise, I just don't think it would have been all that much more interesting to him. But that's just my my educated guess. Now, Jeremy, so back to Campanella for a second. When he, so he met with Branch Rickey, right? And yeah, he yeah. and he said that he thought that Branch Rickey wanted him to play for the Brown Dodgers. Right. Right. The story, I'm sorry, I didn't get to that. Yeah, so Campanella's story, and, and we only kind of have his word uh, to go on on this, was, so he meets with Ricky just a few weeks after Ricky has met with Jackie Robinson, and they've come to an agreement, but they have not publicized yet that Jackie has signed with the Dodgers. He wants, Ricky's talking to Campanella about the same thing, and Campanella obstinately refuses to understand what the conversation is about. <laughs> Ricky doesn't understand that Campanella is confused. And so Kevin, I was like, basically thinking, why would I want to jump from one of the established Negro Leagues to this other little upstart thing over here? I'm making good money, you know, all these things. So, yeah, he misunderstood completely, and he contended. And if this is true, that that's what Ricky wanted, uh, and his Kevin Nell's biographer thinks it is true, he may have beaten Jackie to the major leagues. Uh, it, it's entirely possible. I mean, he didn't play in the minors any any longer, really, than Jackie did. So, Campanella thought he might have might have beaten Jackie, or at least he might have been publicized first or whatever, but he, he could have been right there with Jackie from the beginning, and instead he was sort of in the shadow. 
So in 1976, Oscar Charleston goes into the Hall of Fame. He's represented by his sister, I believe, right? Right. That's right. Catherine. And the, the Hall of Fame plaque is not very descriptive. No. <laughs> it's not. I don't have it in front of me. Do you have it in front of you? Do you want Actually, I do. It, yeah, it, it says, it Negro Leagues 1915-1944, rated among all-time greats of Negro League Leagues. Versatile star, batted well over 300 most years. Speed, strong arm, and fielding instincts made him a standout center fielder. Later moved to first base. Also managed several teams during 40 years in Negro baseball. It does not mention that he was also a, uh, a player manager. Nor does it mention his power, right? It makes right. it sound like he was like a fast single hitter. Yeah. No, I know. I was, it's kind of a disappointing. I mean, these things, you know, like say so much. But really what it needs to say with you is a five-tool player. He can do everything on the field. Yeah, he's a player manager. He didn't just hit over 300 most years. I mean, or by the latest stats on teamheads.com, he has like a 351 batting average with a 431 on-base percentage and a 575 slugging percentage. Pretty good. But here's the thing. We have better Negro League statistics now than we did in 1976. And, and this is one of the things going against Oscar over the years. When he died in 1954, no one could go back and check and just see how good he had been. The the Negro Leagues rarely sort of publish end-of-year statistics. I shouldn't say rarely, but it was semi-infrequently anyway. Uh, and even if they had, they weren't all compiled in an encyclopedia somewhere where there was easy access, like we have everything online now. So um, that, as we get further and further away from his career, it just becomes harder and harder to check and find out and to compile and see what this guy really did. It's really not till our own age when an army of volunteer researchers, like these these unknown heroes out there who have scoured box scores, you know, and found these old newspapers and sent them all in to places like Seamheads, Gary Ashwell, and have put it all together. Now we can see, we can see in a way we couldn't see in 1976 or even in 1954. So yeah, the plaque stinks. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wish it could be rewritten. But I understand why. You know, there was almost just going on hearsay. What we know now shows that it's even better than that plaque suggests. He was a complete player, one of the inner circle, top elite greatest that there's ever been. And he also, not only was manager, he also uh, drove the drove the buses around to get to game <laughs> to game. Yeah, he drove the bus, exactly. The Crawfords, early on, for Crawfords in 1932, he drove that. He drove for the Philadelphia Stars in the 1940s. Yeah, I guess he apparently was one thing he wasn't really great at was being a driver. Uh, a number of players report how scared they were to... <laughs> Uh, be driven by him, and he did get in a couple of famous wrecks. But yeah, you had to do everything in the Negro League. There wasn't a whole lot of specialization of labor. Well, he was in one wreck that you have a story in the book, which just shows his strength. And the car flipped over. It, at the time, it was the uh, the tops that the cloth top. tops, I guess, right? And when he came out, he had uh, the steering wheel chunks of the steering wheel in each hand. It actually that's, ripped that's, the steering wheel off. He said, yeah, that's what, what uh, I think a couple of players said. And you can kind of believe it. You know, sounds that sounds uh, apocryphal, and, and maybe it is, but very well attested is that he could tear the cover off a baseball with his bare hands. And, and his, his hands apparently were just so rough and strong. They felt like a Brillo pad, one player said, but he would, like, come rub your head or something like that. His hands were amazing. <laughs> and that's 
one of the things people talk about a lot was his strong hands. Probably what gave him his bat speed and a lot of his power at the plate as well. So, yeah, he, uh, that is a great story with the steering wheel. I like that one. And he was an incredible center fielder. He was an incredible first baseman. And what people uh, don't, some people realize, some people don't, is that when he played center field, the the mitt was basically the size of your hand. Right. It wasn't like now, where you got the huge basket on it and you could make a catch. With you. I mean, the, he was an amazing center fielder, right? That, yeah, and that goes back to the hands. You're exactly right. So you're right. The mitt was about as big as your hand with almost no padding, maybe none. Uh, just a piece of leather, basically. And what he, what the press is always remarking on from the very beginning, 1915, 1916, when he breaks in, are all the one-handed catches he makes. Uh, it's a one-handed catch, a, a running one-handed catch. Now we're like, oh, of course a one-handed catch. But no, back then, a one-handed catch was hard. It wasn't this big mitt. Everybody kind of used two hands to catch it. You know, immediately you clasp the other hand on to catch the ball. So one gets the impression in reading the press accounts that he was one of the earliest masters of the one-handed catch. And again, it just, it just tells you how strong his hands were. To, to catch, you know, 380-foot liners with one hand on the run can't be easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Our, our guest is Jeremy Beer. Jeremy has written a book that, I, if, you, if you are a fan of the game, fan of history, you love baseball stories, we highly recommend. It's called Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. Jeremy, what is your hope now besides incredible sales what what is your hope with this book and then what do you want to do next you want to write another book um, I need to, you know. yeah good question on what do you want to do next I, I don't have uh, an answer for that one yet but I hope I do two things one I, I hope the Indianapolis does something to claim Oscar so that that's and I have done nothing to further that other than to publish this book but you know, an Oscar Charlton Day, Indianapolis Indians game at the very least, a statue outside that stadium would be completely uh, justified, and Indy needs to do something to claim to claim this man. So that, that'd be one thing. But secondly, I just want to see there be more full biographies, you know, of, of these forgotten Negro Leagues greats, players, managers, owners. There's a, there's a ton. I mean, this, as far as I could tell, other than Gibson and Rube Foster, this might be the only other full biography of a player who played his entire career in the Negro Leagues, so not counting Page and people like that. That's remarkable to me. So there's a lot of work still to do. It's kind of easier to do it now than it ever was. So I, uh, that's certainly a hope I have, is that others will write um, books like this about other men who deserve to be remembered. Now, Jeremy, you, Oscar did not have uh, any children. But he did have brothers, and he had a... He, I think he had ten brothers and sisters. He, right, he had siblings. And I would imagine that they had kids. And, you know, so there, there have to be some descendants of, uh, from that family. Has anyone gotten in touch with you now that you've written this and said, wow, this is, you know, I'm, I'm one of, you know, I'm a, he's my great uncle or, you know, something. Right, right. Yeah. No, one woman, one young woman, got in touch a couple of months ago. And I, by the way, I tried very hard over years to find descendants. I had the same thought as you. Like, oh, there must be a, a bunch of them out there. 
I was not able to find any blood descendants of his siblings, uh, despite looking a lot, building a, a full family tree on Ancestry.com and you know following that trail. I did have one young woman get in touch with me a couple of months ago uh, with her mother. We were trying to figure out whether they were related, but we can't exactly connect them as of right now. So maybe all this radio and the podcast and things I'm doing will bring somebody out of the woodwork. I certainly hope so. Um, I would love to, to talk to them and, and have them you know, share in, in their uh, great-great-uncle's fame or whatever it might be. But yeah, so far, no. And it's, it's remarkable. There were so many of them. How could that be? But... There you have it. <laughs> I, I couldn't find them. Well, you know, we, we want to thank you for your time. I do have two more questions. One a little sad. One, well, I, I don't want to add in a sad note. So I'm going to uh, save the, the happy question for, for last. In the beginning of the book, and actually in the introduction, the, you, you said the occupation given on his death certificate was baggage handler. Baggage handler not as a, a ball player. That, is, to me, is incredibly sad. Yeah. Well, that's why I put it in, right? It, it definitely strikes a poignant note. I don't know what to say about that. It's it's interesting. Like, I don't know who did that. Was that his sister who put that down? Was she somewhat embarrassed he was a ball player? I don't think so. He was working on the offseason as a baggage handler. It's probably just how, you know, the people at the hospital, the Philadelphia General Hospital, uh, knew him, or maybe they'd asked him what he was doing at the time. He fell and had his, his the fall that led ultimately to his Death. I mean, it was, there are a lot of converging factors. You're right. I mean, his headstone the same one. It's a very simple military headstone. No mention of baseball whatsoever. Yeah, those are poignant notes. It points to a lot of the realities of, of life for a Negro League's manager at that time. Faded glory. <laughs> all, all those things that, that give poignancy to, to lives like these. Was he given a, a military uh, funeral? I don't think he was given... That's a good question, I don't think so. But you know what? I don't know. He certainly applied, his family applied for the military headstone. And that's that's the headstone that is there now. But I don't remember reading in, in the little accounts of the funeral that we have that it was a military funeral, but I, I could be wrong about that. You know, I, actually, this is more of a statement than a question, but, you know, the book is, uh, Oscar Charleston, it is a fantastic book. It, it really brings out the, the history and, and the great life of Oscar Charleston, uh, as unfortunately short as it was, because I think he died at 54, 55 years old. I, you know, I wish you best of luck with this book. It is fantastic. And where can people buy it? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Well, uh, you can buy it from the Jeff uh, Bezos Empire, of course, like you can buy anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but um, if you want to avoid that, University of Nebraska Press's website, uh, if you just you know, Google Oscar Charleston, University of Nebraska Press, that page will come up. Or best bet, if you're lucky enough to have an independent bookstore near you, uh, have, them, have them order it for you. I, I couldn't put it down. I mean, I, I just looked forward to any opportunity that I had free time that I can go and read some more. It just, it, you just immersed yourself. You felt like you were living in that period of time. And, I, I, and that's a huge compliment to you to oh, thank you it, it, you just you start reading it and it's like you just you're in that time period I, I don't know how to say it any better and you have a couple dozen pictures pictures in here which you know really capture the, the life of, of Oscar Charleston yeah thank you I was happy to be, we could include those pictures it's certainly 
certainly helps you get a, a feel for obviously what he looked like and who and uh, what he looked like on the diamond and in street clothes and yeah, his personality shines through and eyes especially. Those are intense eyes he has. Yeah, and we are so glad that you have written the book because it, it also brings attention to the Negro baseball leagues, which we are always looking for information on. Uh, like I said, we, we spoke to Bob Kendrick, uh, now it's a couple of years almost, and the stories that he told us are just incredible. There's so many stories. I mean, you've got all these stories. These None of these stories that you told in your book are the same that he told us. I'm sure there's so many more stories that could be right. told. And, and, yeah. and you focused on one player, although, of course, you had all this... Things on Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige and I mean all the, the other names which we've mentioned and again I, I just really enjoyed it so uh, Jeremy thank you very much yeah thank you for joining us we pre- really really appreciate it oh thank you this was a lot of fun for me I, I really appreciate it guys thank you thank you well thank you uh, to Jeremy Beer and if you have any comments on the interview give us a call 516-855-8214 email us Baseball and BBQ at gmail.com. And you can leave a comment on our Facebook page. So, Oscar Charleston. Amazing. Great, great player. Great player, five-tool player, and the fact that he really is the forgotten player, and it's a shame. It's it, the whole, I, I, it's just a shame, the whole, the, the fact that this, the leagues were separate. It just, but. Well, that's, and that's. The, that's for historians to uh, to debate. Now we're here just to talk about it, and uh, yeah, but I I just it's sad. It is. But uh, he was a five tool player, and hopefully now more people will know who he is, and he'll be recognized. And yeah. Maybe maybe they'll do something, and maybe they'll and they'll put a statue up. In, maybe in, they'll in Indianapolis. Yes. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. in in the interview he did mention that there's nothing really to memorialize this great player. I hope that we can get uh, Bob Kendrick back on. Uh, at some time in the future, mm-hmm. and and mention talk about Oscar Charleston with him. Okay, great. What's next? I don't care what your mama says. Christmas time is near. I don't care what your daddy says. Christmas time is near. Making its way to the USA. So, Len, what do you have for us? Ah, barbecue time. Ah, you're right. Barbecue time. Nice holiday spirit. Let's get in the mood. You know, I I mentioned in the beginning that we first, our first episode, we talked about Christmas gifts, or holiday, I should say holiday gifts. Holiday gifts, yeah. Holiday gifts. Let's be be political and correct here. Yes, holiday gifts for barbecue enthusiasts. Yes. And at that time, we hadn't had anybody on that was selling anything. But now we have. And when you're a guest on this show, you are a friend of the show. A friend for life. That's right. Our way of giving back is going to be to tell you guys a recap of the companies that we've had on. And you know what? Every company that we've had on, I feel that we can promote. Uh, I ha- we haven't had anybody on who I felt 
you know, didn't have a good product. No, they all had good products. And, and since this is the holiday time, you could always purchase some gifts from these, our friends. Right. Uh, who we're going to tell you about. They all have great products. And Len, why don't you start us yeah. off with the first one? And what I'm going to do also is that we'll, we'll point out, you know, that your stocking stuffers or, you know, if you're having a secret Santa or grab bag or whatever you want to have. You need small gifts, large gifts. So let's start with Thermoworks, all right? Thermoworks, yes. Their website is thermoworks.com. We had on Kyle Halverson. And if you remember, Thermoworks has thermometers, fantastic thermometers. These are the best thermometers you're going to find. But they have more than just thermometers. Yes, but let's just talk about the thermometers for a second. Okay. Okay. They have one thermometer that I went on there today, and it's currently $12. I think it's originally, it's normally $15. I can't guarantee any prices, so... But it's a small thermometer. It's meant to go on a keychain. It's a little fun thermometer, and you'll always have one with you. And it's just if you if you need to get someone a little gift, it's perfect size. Then they have a thermopop. All right. Now the thermopop is also that's a fantastic thermometer, priced reasonably. And after that, you've got the thermopen, classic, the thermopen MK4, which has. You know, as we're going up and up the, the ladder there, they get a little more expensive. They have books. They have temperature alarms. Anything. They have silicone spatulas. They have all sorts silicone of... Silicone brushes. Yeah. Yeah, so if you go onto their webpage, you go there, the Thermworks Gift Guide. Right. Where it tells you top gifts, stocking stuffers, must-have, grilling essentials. Great place if you want to uh, buy for your... Barbecue enthusiast. Right. You'll definitely find something there. Yes. Okay. What Next. else you got? All right. How about Barbecue Buddha? Barbecue Buddha. Ray Sheen. Ray Sheen. He is... You've heard Ray on the show. We love Ray. Fantastic rubs and sauces. All natural products. He, if you, you heard him talking about it on just a couple episodes ago. It's all natural. It's not like with all the chemicals... And they are fantastic. Go to BBQ. It's well, it's barbecuebuddha.com, but that's BBQ B U D D H A dot com. You'll see a picture of Ray smiling with his sauce. He's holding a jar of sauce. And it's good to know that his products are gluten free, no high fructose corn syrup, peanut free, mm-hmm. no MSG. No trans fat, cholesterol free, and no artificial and colors. Right, and I think one of his sauces is, I think he said for vegans or vegetarian or whatever. And then another one does have some product in it that that would not be vegan. But even so, even if you have a vegan uh, in your life, I think there's a sauce there for that. Right. Too. So just go right? to the shop tab on his webpage, and you can fill up your cart that way. Right. Or. If you happen to be, if you look, there's he's got a ton of locations where they sell his product. Yes. So uh, either way, you're gonna find you're gonna be able to get it. Yeah, it looks like mostly in New Jersey, but there's some in other states: New York, Iowa, I see here, Mississippi. So yeah, check around. You can always buy him stuff online, and it's perfect too because a little jar of sauce, a little a, a you know a bottle of rub makes a great stocking stuffer. Yeah. Again, Secret Santa, whatever. 
Okay. One of his parts is called belly rub. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> okay. There you go. All right. So that's Barbecue Buddha. Okay. Moving along, we've got Gorilla Grills. Gorilla Grills. Their website is GorillaGrills.com. And that's Shane Draper. And you know, uh, we, we've had him on a couple of times. Actually, probably like three times, I think. Well, one was a two-part episode. Yep. And then he had a, a Facebook thing with us yes. that we, we did like a joint episode. So Gorilla Grills, all right, they have on, you go to their website, they have sauces and rubs. Then they also, they sell pellet grills, okay? You could get pellet grills in different sizes, so that goes by cost. If you want to get something less expensive, more expensive, depends on the size you need, but they have the pellet grills. They also have a Kamado grill. They sell bags of wood pellets. They sell apparel, hats and t-shirts. Hats and t-shirts. They have uh, even the uh, novelties like a koozie and a meat shredding claws and sauce and rub caddies. So, yeah, they have it all there. They also have uh, some a pizza stone. Uh, and I don't know what this is, a diffuser for Kong? Oh, that's, well, that's the Kamado grill. You put that on and okay. that's, but yeah, they, that's, they that's an accessory. Online. They yes. can get online too. Right. And that, yeah. All of this is online. Yeah, hoodies. Yeah, they've got aprons, great hats. Hats. Right. As a matter of fact, I have a Gorilla Grill hat. I love wearing that hat. Yes. Yeah, right? So, yes. okay. So that's a good place. GorillaGrills.com. Yeah. And also, now, another thing to mention, I think Gorilla Grills has it, is you can also, on some of these sites, you can get gift cards as well. Right. So... If you're not sure what to get, but you know that you want to get something from there or somebody has mentioned it, that they like what they have, get them a gift card. All right, now, Pit Barrel Cookers. Pit Barrel, Noah. Right, Noah Glanville. It's pitbarrelcooker.com. And they have what's referred to as the ugly drum smoker. But if you just want to get into smoking, if you know somebody... They've mentioned, you know, I really like to start smoking food. I like to, you know, make brisket, uh, chicken, what, you know, ribs. They are really easy to use. They have two sizes. They have the pit barrel regular, and then they have the pit barrel junior. They have dry rubs. They have accessories. I mean, you could pimp this thing out if you want to. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they have they have a a, a rack, and then the rack folds down so that at the same time you're doing ribs you could put something on the rack and do vegetables at the same time you you'll spend hours on the site but it's pitbarrelcooker.com then we've got sweet heat now sweet heat. that's right if you remember Damon mullen yes Damon. okay we met him in atlantic city mm-hmm. at the uh at the expo. At the expo. Right, that was actually sponsored by the next company we're going to mention. But he also, it's uh, it's SW, now it's three E's because it's sweet heat. Sweetheat.com. Demond Mullen, rubs and sauces. And if you go on his website, which is Sweet Heat, S W E E E T H E A T.com. He also has recipes on there. So, you know, if you want to get some uh, of his rubs and sauces Mm -hmm. and stick in a recipe for your barbecue enthusiast. 
you you bought a sauce from him. What was it? The uh, the one that had bacon in it or yeah, something, it right? Good. It was very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Now, next, Barbecue Guru. That's BBQ Guru. So it's BBQGuru.com. How do you spell guru? G-U-R-U. Guru. Right. So it's BBQGuru.com. Guys, if you remember Lisa Joe Getter, we love Lisa Joe. We went to their uh, their, mo- their their Monolith Monster Fest, which was great. We met Bob Trudnak. We met Mo Kaysan. And Barbecue Guru, they have so many items. They have temperature control devices. They have the Monolith, which is a ceramic Amato grill. They have accessories, including a rib ring. Which, it, when you look at the site, it, the rib ring, it, it enables you to make like six ribs at one time, six racks of ribs like at once. Um, you're really going to get lost on this site. And the site, if you go on the site, they have running a special now. Uh, they have right. three weeks of specials. Right. So the one, week one goes through December 8th, and then mm-hmm. I guess week two goes through the 15th, mm-hmm. or three, whatever. Right. And then... Uh, they have their specials and sale. You can sign up for their newsletter and check it out. They have sauces, rubs, injections, thermometers. Meat they handlers, have gift cards, right? They cut, have hats. Disposable, disposable cutting boards. And, you know, I said injections. So when I... somebody's going to talking about needles? Right, somebody's going to think of needle. But actually, an injection is if you're making a big chunk of meat, and you want to put some moisture into the meat. Some people like to inject it, and they'll they'll make a they'll make a liquid. They, sometimes they use orange juice, whatever. You could look up all these things, but they sell the the items to make the injections to inject it, and it puts liquid into your meat. And a lot of people like that. They think it, it gives moisture to the to the meat. So they also have some of their apparel. They have some barbecue uh, BBQ Guru hats. By the way, I did not get mine. I'm very upset about that. Right. Uh, they have knives and sharpeners. They have uh, probes, guru probes. Do you want to explain what a probe is? So the probe goes from the the meat into the uh, the temperature device that you can monitor the temperature of the meat. When you're making a big chunk of meat, you don't want to have to keep going outside and checking the temperature. This is a monitor... You could just, it goes right into the meat, the probe comes out of the grill, goes into the device, and you'll see the temperature. It's the same with uh, Thermoworks. They have things like that as well, where you don't have to keep lifting the lid and injecting, you know, and putting right. the thermometer in. So, And they also have uh, gift cards a- as well. That's right. All where, right. Where to next? All right. Well, you know, we also had on uh, Jamie Proviance, and Jamie Proviance is a prolific cookbook author for Weber. His, if you, you can get his books on Amazon, and there's numerous books. They've got Weber's Ultimate Grilling, Weber's Greatest Hits, Big Book of Burgers, okay, New Real Grilling. So if you're looking for a book by Jamie Proviance, who's a great cookbook author, great cook, you'll see plenty of books by him. Now, this is one, we were sent the book, but we haven't had the author on yet, but I still really like the book and I'm going to promote it. It's called it's by Ed Randolph 
and it's called Smoked. One man's journey to find incredible recipes, standout pitmasters, and the stories behind them. It's really a good book. It's, it's not just recipes. You also learn about the people that, that behind the recipe and all the pitmasters. It's very good. Like I said, we haven't had Ed Randolph on yet. He's certainly someone we're hoping to have uh, in the near future. But I highly recommend the book. And the book comes in both paperback and, and Kindle. Right. So there's plenty of, there's plenty of cookbooks. Jamie Proviance, Ed Randolph... And but a cookbook is a great gift. It absolutely right? is. Sure. Okay. So how about this? How about a gift card to your favorite barbecue restaurant? Now, oh. Right? That's good. Yeah. So we I mean we had on Manny, Manny Vumaracus, right? From Smokehouse. You can buy gift cards from them. But check out your uh check out your favorite barbecue place. So we have David Marks on, right? So he has Famous Dave's. Famous Dave's. So I, I would imagine all these barbecue places have gift cards, that, which is a great gift. And speaking of David Marks. Yes. David Marks and Operation Barbecue Relief. This is the time of year when people, you know, they want to donate, you know, they give to people less fortunate than them. If you want to donate to a great cause, you've heard David Marks on the show. You've heard him talk about Operation Barbecue Relief. If you want to make a donation, you could do it right on their site. Their site is uh, operationbbqrelief.org. Oh, or you can do obr.org as well. Okay. And you heard him say that most uh, that all the money goes directly to the relief. Right. So they don't take anything for uh, administrative expenses. Yep. It all goes to the people in need. And so it's, a, it's an excellent, excellent charity to give to. Yes. And when you go on the site... It'll give you the option. There's a donate button, top right corner, and you can give. It says gift donation. Then you could or gift honoring someone or gift in memoriam. So you have the option of doing whichever one you want. But that's a nice gift at this time. It absolutely is. They also have a uh, holiday gift, some some apparel and some other gifts that you can give. There's a limited edition uh, ornament. There is cookbooks, there's t-shirts, so go on their site and, and do a little shopping, help the, help the good cause. Right, they actually have a, an Operation Barbecue cookbook, OBR cookbook. You might be interested in that. And then finally, last but not certainly not least, is Gaucho Grills. We had Gaucho Grills on uh, the show when we were in New Jersey again at the uh, in Atlantic City. These grills are definitely... A little more expensive. A little unique. I would yeah, say unique. unique. And also more expensive, I think, right? I mean, the prices on these grills, you you know, they're, it's, they're terrific grills. Okay, don't get me wrong. But, you know, if you're looking to get something a little more expensive for someone and unique, these are Argentinian grills, and they're really great. Go to gaucho-grills.com, and you'll see exactly what we mean. And there's accessories as well for these grills and that is a good guide for holiday shopping and i will just sit by uh by my mailbox i guess or by my door and wait for you to i i don't know what you're getting me jeff but i just gave you a whole list so i'll just wait oh and you'll wait <laughs> and i'll probably wait and wait and wait but guys 
you can't go wrong with any of these, right? That's really a pretty extensive list. Yes. The barbecue, the barbecue connoisseur, the barbecue lover in your life will be very happy. Absolutely. And with that, it is time to say farewell. Fare thee well. Fare thee well. We will be back in two weeks for our anniversary episode. And I want to give you the information one last time. Is that okay with you? Yeah, I could I could deal with that, sure. All right. What's our Instagram? Oh, don't quiz me, please. This is Our right. Instagram is uh, address is baseball and yes. barbecue. Of course. Barbecue is all spelled out. Instagram. Twitter is baseball and BBQ. Uh, we have our Facebook page. Leave a comment there. Give us a call, 516-855-8214. We also have our website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. You can go there. You can find older episodes. There's photos on there as well. And where can you find us? You can find us on, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spotify iHeartRadio, Stitcher. Yeah. I, you know what? You can Please do us a favor. Rate and review us. Yeah, please. That, that could be your Christmas gift to us or your holiday gift to us. Right. We, you know, we want to grow the show and we can do that with your help. If you rate and review us, other people find out about us. Right. Can you believe that in two weeks it will be our two-year anniversary of doing the show? Yep. Two years. Two years. So, for now... Oh, also get... get uh, I know it's not barbecue, but get Jeremy Beer's book. Yeah. That that would make a great holiday gift. Baseball books. Yeah. I mean, that. Though we were going barbecue, and we could go down the list of all the great authors that we've had. But certainly, baseball books would be great, since we just had Jeremy on. Get his book. Oh, you know what else? I also forgot. Go. You still have time to go to... The exhibit, the polo, uh, the polo grounds exhibit. If you're in New York, if you're in New York, up in Manhattan, the Morris Jumel Mansion has the the uh, polo grounds show through January fifth. Right. So go there. It's a terrific exhibit. Yes, it is. And now, now we're ready to say goodbye. Ready to say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>